if you're not outperforming ETH, you got to really have a strong look in the mirror of like, what am I doing here? Hello and welcome to DeFire, the podcast that gives you the wisdom and entertainment to survive even the harshest bear markets. My name is Jonas and today on the show I'm going to visit a venture capitalist with a pleasing baritone voice. I mean, listen to this. I'm Ryan and I'm confident enough to wear moon boots. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Sorer is a VC and entrepreneur who somehow managed to reliably be early to almost everything, from crypto to renewables and NFTs, and now even psychedelics. Uh, often when I'm, I'm talking with people about our bioscience, our psychedelics and longevity fund today, I mentioned that psychedelics is actually my fourth bubble. In this conversation, we talk about his journey from trading dot-com stocks as a teenager to how he became CEO of a big energy company in Brazil when he was only 29 years old. Ryan also shares the stories of the early days of Polychain Capital and how two guys with a laptop started one of the most successful VC funds out of an apartment in San Francisco. But that's not all. We also talk about NFTs and art. Because Ryan recently gained notoriety in the art world as well when he bought Human One, a digital artwork slash sculpture by the artist Beeple. This is Human One the kinetic video sculpture and accompanying NFT. Let's open the bidding at 10, 11. Ryan relives the moment of the auction and explains his strategies and tells us what makes this sculpture of an astronaut strolling through a dystopian landscape so unique. But before we dive in, a short word from the sponsor of this episode, me. CryptoValley.Jobs is a job board where engineers, designers, analysts, traders and community builders can find cool crypto jobs. Full disclosure, I run this job board as a side project of this podcast. So if you are looking for a job or you want to advertise an open position, please go and visit CryptoValley.Jobs. And while you're there, make sure to sign up on the email list so you're always informed when new jobs are posted on the platform. That's CryptoValley.Jobs. Now, let's start the show. Cool. No, that's good, yeah. All right. And uh, before we start, I also brought you a little present. I'm not sure if you know what that is. Oh, yeah. Do I ever. <laughs> In fact, I'm going down there on Saturday. It's some white powder from, from South, South America. America. <laughs> I imagine when, as you went through security, they were like, what is this from Brazil? <laughs> exactly. Like, ah, it's like we just make omelets with it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, let, let's just start then. Sure. Ryan Sir, thank you so much for, for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, I bumped into Ozan and Dean the other day, uh -huh. other night, actually in Langstrasse. Yeah. And I asked them what would be Checks out. a good icebreaker. <laughs> and they told me I should ask you, what are your favorite shoes and where do they come from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Definitely the present that Ozan and Dean got me here are very special shoes at this point. We've had this joke going around because we spend a lot of time in St. Moritz as a team, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way that we structure our team at Dialectic and like how we spend time together is sort of this ebb and flow of remote versus being together. Mm -hmm. And very frequently when we were together, we would be up in St. Moritz. 
which is like moon boot capital of the world. As I was walking around and noticing these moon boots, which were mostly worn by Russian oligarch wives up in St. Moritz, I kind of, <laughs> I made the question one day if it's in any way appropriate or acceptable for a, a white straight male to wear moon boots. And they <laughs> laughed hysterically at me uh -huh. for a while, but then the joke kept going and they, they got me a pair of, I suppose the most masculine moon boots that there, there are. And I absolutely love them. They're great. Yeah. And Dean and Ozan obviously are um, employees or co-workers of yep. yours, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Dean was co-founder of Dialectic. When I started Dialectic, you know, Dean is a very unique character in crypto. Even though he's very young, he's had a, a really long track record of doing great work. So he did some of the most complex smart contract security audits in, in the game. Mm -hmm. And uh, also calling out bullshit. Years before those people ended up being called out as, as charlatans or whatever else, he was the first one to highlight that and do it publicly and unabashedly. So he's an independent thinker, which is what I wanted in a co-founder. And I wanted somebody with the technical skill set. And then incidentally, you know, because we were starting in, in Switzerland, I either could have paid a lawyer to be the director at the time mm -hmm. as a Swiss resident, or just find somebody I like to be around as my uh, co-board member and, and director. And so Dean became an obvious choice that where our friendship evolved into a partnership. And then Ozon came in as part of the founding team. We have a group of five that we consider the founding group that mm -hmm. spent all those weeks up in St. Moritz designing what dialectic has become today. All right. Wow. I, di I didn't know that. So Ryan, um, we also need to have this sound bit where you introduce yourself, but I, I'm gonna make it a little bit more fun for you. Um, you walk into a room with a lot of impressive people that you probably know, but they don't know you. And you want them to know that you are kind of a big deal. How do you walk up to them? How do you introduce yourself? I think I would say I'm Ryan and I'm confident enough to wear moon boots. <laughs> no, <it's laughs> okay. uh, so, you know, this sort of like, give a bit of background and qualifier. I spent uh, a decade in renewables in the 2000s and kind of the clean tech uh, boom. And incidentally, uh, often when I'm, I'm talking with people about our bioscience, our psychedelics and longevity fund today, I mentioned that psychedelics is actually my fourth bubble. I was very active trading dot-com stocks in the 90s as a teenager and had some great runs, but also great crashes. I was very much part of the clean tech boom of the late 2000s. And then obviously I've sat at the eye of the storm of the growth in crypto through the 2010s. I was mining in, in 2013, obviously a center stage for the ICO boom in 2017, leading polychains, private investments, and doing a lot of the early SAFs, an instrument that I created. And then now again, fortunate enough to, to, to sort of be at the eye of the storm in the Plater and gaming and NFT boom here in, in crypto. And then in parallel, became really passionate about psychedelics as a solution for mental health, which in my view is the biggest problem that mankind faces today. You know, having a decade in renewables, I left renewables because I understood very, very directly, and, and I would argue unequivocally, that climate change is technologically solved. We have all the technology we need to fix climate change. It's just a matter of implementing the infrastructure and, and it's infrastructure, right? It takes decades to implement. It's not something that happens overnight. And so today the, the largest problem that mankind faces 
is certainly the mental health pandemic that we've unleashed onto our society. So four bubbles over the course of a little more than 20 years, and very grateful for the ride that has been each time. And just to, rem to remind the people, what are SAFs again? What does that stand for? So a SAFT is a simple agreement for future tokens. It is a play on the Y Combinator safe. So I took the publicly available Y Combinator safe, and I modified it for tokens. And originally, I actually called it a safety because I wanted it to be able to convert with tokens or equity. But my friend Juan Benet, who who really was was one of the leading minds of creating like the defining SAFT that we now use, and their SAFT was not the first, but it was the first professionalized SAFT, the Filecoin SAFT. He had recommended to me to not use the word safety because it conveys a message of security, yeah. which these things are by no means safe or secure yeah. in any way. <laughs> Incidentally, it kind of has now migrated, like independent of me, the, the industry has sort of migrated it to a safety, but like SAFT-E uh, rather than than just like a safety. And, and I think that's because a lot of lawyers came to the same conclusion that Juan did, that yes, we need an equity kicker often, but no, we don't need to be communicating to the world any level of security with this because these are probably the most unsafe financial assets that anybody can invest into. Yeah. I would like to quickly jump in the beginning when you were starting to go into crypto. Mm -hmm. So I understood that you, you, you I, th I think I've seen like the first of your uh, presentations in, in in, in Rio, yeah, in, in Rio. Brazil, with, yeah. uh, with Alexander van der Sande, who was on yeah. the pod as well. Yeah. What was that the first time when you got into crypto and why? Like, uh, you were in renewables at the time, but 2015 or earlier, and you already started to go into crypto. What was the thing that you saw that you were like, okay, this is the next big thing? So I was CEO of a pretty large energy producer in Brazil. It was a subsidiary of the JBS group. And I really liked being in Brazil in part because it's just a wonderful country that is a world unto itself. And like, it's just like filled with so much beauty and magic. And I was given the opportunity to be CEO of a company that would have taken me 35 years to be a CEO of in In how, North America. How old were you at the time when? Uh, I was 29 when I took the CEO job. Wow, um, that's for yeah for for. It must have been scary, you know, to to be suddenly a CEO of a big company. No, because it, 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 incidentally, what happened was I was I was working with Vestas, and I got an opportunity to build some of the early wind projects in Brazil. And in fact, it was a deal between me and Vestas because I had just done one of the first large scale projects in China, which was up in Inner Mongolia. And it was bitterly cold. It was through the winter. It was a demonstration project for the Olympics. So we had to get it done. So we had to be there in this like minus 40, like tundra. And I told Vestas, I was like, no more cold weather projects. I want somewhere warm next. And so they they didn't think that I would, I would accept it, but they're like, okay, well, we have these like two pro small projects that we have to do on the beach in Brazil but we don't think that this market is going to go anywhere. And this is like 2007, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so like, you could do that, but you'd be kind of like throwing away your, your career because like you'd be stranded down there in, in South America. And, and I took, I took the, the opportunity. And as the world crumbled in, in 2008, mm -hmm. debt dried up. And debt really is the lifeblood of infrastructure projects, especially renewables. Brazil was at the end of the Lula era and really starting to take off. And so I started there with almost a quarter of the entire installed capacity under my wings as a 25-year-old. 
And, and so it was just kind of like right place, right time. And I kind of built out an expertise of Brazilian renewables younger than other people had. You know, you can age in two ways. You can age from time or you can age from war. And I felt like, you know, I had just been through the battles in, in renewables such that I, I was, you know, I was the correct person for, for that kind of job at that time. Incidentally, I had to, through my 20s, mostly lie about my age to colleagues. I hadn't really, like, been completely transparent. And you couldn't be in renewables because so many people were, like, 50s and, and above that they just, like, they wouldn't listen to a 27-year-old if you told them that you're 27, yeah. especially in a place like Brazil where there's, you know, so hierarchy and, yeah. and chauvinism and so on and so forth, right? Like, taking... For some reason, there's a massive mental leap for like a Brazilian energy executive to take instructions from a 28-year-old or a 31-year-old. And so I just, you know, for their own peace of mind, would, would let them think what they wanted to. Okay. <laughs> a good beard helps. <laughs> so, so being down there and running this business and really enjoying life down there and not wanting to leave... I did have to send money home all the time to like, a, you know, I had a cottage that needed like regular payments and things like that. And I was just getting absolutely skinned on remittance fees. Like you can't, people think they're only paying a few percent or less than 1% on a remittance fee. But the thing that you don't understand is you pay tourism dollar. You don't pay commercial dollar. Yeah. And so your actual all in cost, like I was calculating it. I did tests like actual tests on this were I took a thousand, ten thousand, and a hundred thousand hey eyes at the time, and I did three remittances with them home, and uh, even on the hundred thousand, I couldn't get it below ten percent all in cost of cash in my pocket in Brazil to cash in my pocket in Canada, and so I was like, this is it just infuriated me to the point where I wanted a different solution. And so the moment that I discovered Bitcoin, I immediately like went to that use case. And I also immediately, and that was also like the moment that I discovered smart contracts in Ethereum, I immediately went to the use cases that I could exploit in renewables. Cause we were spending, we were spending like a hundred million dollars a year on escrow contracts. And we had, and our contracts were 10,000 plus pages. And you could really simplify all of that both financially and from like a contractual language perspective, if you created it as if-then statements in a smart contract. And escrow just is, you send the money and you only release it under certain yeah. circumstances. Yeah. And why was that hundred million locked in there? Or why did you spend so much on, on, on that? So that was just like service fees. Like we were, we were putting billions through escrow contracts, but then they would take, you know, typically like 140 bips to 280 bips just as a service fee for escrow down there. And the reason for that is because when you go bilateral, it's kind of like crypto, and this sort of made crypto a natural transition for me. When you're, when you're doing business between two different countries of, and two businesses in two countries, and it's above a certain threshold of monetary value, like say like 100 million, laws are off the table, right? Like all bets are off. Like you'd be surprised the world-class organizations that act like scumbags in these kinds of environments. Like, if they can steal $20 million from you, like, they will. So, so these contracts look like you're dealing with, it in Portuguese, we, we, would, we would say a, a contrato de pilantragem, like, where you're dealing with this, like, you know, scumbag who, like, 
here, I'll give you like 1% and then you give me like 1% of the goods and then I'll give you another percent and then you give me another percent of the goods. And that's just like the nature of how that business operates. And we're having net operating costs of these financial instruments that I, I found, like I quickly identified that smart contracts and crypto could negate away that, you know, were really, really large. And then for myself as an individual, I, I thought, okay, hey, you know, Bitcoin could be rails for me to do a remensis. And that's, that sort of led me to my first crypto business, which was called Coinverse, where we were doing remittances for Brazilians using Bitcoin. It wasn't that successful, although it still operates today, and I'm very proud of that. But it wasn't that successful because the volatility of Bitcoin sometimes would eclipse what you would save on remittance. And because people often did not want to use their Bitcoin for like everyday payments. You know, it, it really has become a speculative asset. Yeah. So we kind of... What year was that when you, when, when you founded that? That was 2013. 2013. Yeah. Wow. And, but you were a CEO of this huge company. How did you even have time to uh, think I, about that? I, 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 hired, I hired in a, a CEO to run that and he did a good job and, and, and we ended up going on to sell it to a larger crypto exchange in, in Brazil. And the service still operates today, which is, which is oh, that's cool. Well. Yeah, people, yeah. People use it to pay boletos, right? You're familiar uh -huh. with boleto? Yeah, yeah. yeah, so people who, who often live outside of Brazil and are, you know, crypto rich, they'll pay for their costs in Brazil with, with the service. And so it's like... I must check it out because I sometimes have issues like that. <laughs> Clearly, like, you, you, were, you were very entrepreneurial at the time, or still are. Uh, what, what was occupying your mind? Did you want to become financially successful or what was, what was driving you? At the time, around 2011, I had started doing some venture capital around crowdsourcing, crowdfunding. I thought crowdfunding was really, really powerful. And that was also like kind of a click aha moment for, for crypto and especially Ethereum. Just the crowdfunding use case, which eventually went on to be called ICOs, was a use case that was amazing because when you raise capital from a crowd rather than a group of VCs, you gain a value add that no VC on the planet can touch, right? You gain, you know, free work, free beta testers, free evangelists and marketers and, and people, you know, this community of people driving your project forward that gives it much more leverage than if you took capital from even the most thoughtful, you know, venture investor on the planet. And then often you were getting capital way better terms, which we've, we've seen over and over again. So I just thought of it as a model that could disrupt venture capital. Being in Brazil, I was kind of felt like I was on the outside looking in to, to Silicon Valley in terms of deal flow. And, and I wanted something that could like flip the switch on that and make venture capital more, more of a global business than a local business, because it was like very concentrated in the Valley at that time. And we've just started to achieve that like distribution of, of wealth and power and, and venture. And I would argue that it's largely been driven from crypto. I, I was also super interested in crowdfunding, wrote my master thesis about, about oh, yeah? it. Yeah. I always thought that that's the cool thing that you can be, me as a retail investor, so to say, can, can have the upside that usually just VC have. Yep. Now I feel kind of the tide has shifted again to this, uh, you know, like the ICO boom is over and it ha hasn't always been good. It has sometimes attracted the least intelligent kind of investors, right? N not always, obviously, I mean, yep. Ethereum and uh, a sure. ton of good projects come out of it. Yep. But that, 
that is a criticism that somehow I think is valid as well. Th those types of things, I'm just sort of like, you know, I'm the type that I'm perfectly happy to let chaos reign and like things will shake out over time. And it's okay in my view to have, you know, a large percentage be like failed experiments because that's like the nature of experimentation. But I do recognize that ICOs grew it, it, in the mind of some people maybe too quickly and without enough due diligence. And it's funny, I, I used to argue that because I was an early investor in the Dow, actually that's where uh, uh, Alex and I became really good friends. I used to argue and I still think that if the Dow had survived, the ICO boom would have been much more tepid and much more reasoned because the Dow would have been doing good due diligence. It would have held the, the industry to account where a distributed group of investors can't really do that because if somebody doesn't invest, then somebody else will. And so you can't really like hold entrepreneurs' feet to the fire because, you know, there's no like important signal. But if the Dow was there setting like the standard and saying, hey, you know, this project we're not going to invest in because they didn't pass our due diligence, mm -hmm. that would have allowed a lot of projects that we even came to learn were scams. It would have prevented them from, from getting capital. Uh, this was kind of kind of interesting that way. It's interesting that the DAO never really was kind of like re-engineered and, and redone because I thought at the time it was such an interesting idea and a, a great use case. So why did no, nobody ever try it again to yeah. do this, you know? So, but people have, and we've invested in a number of them. I put out some proposals in 2018 when I left the Web3 Foundation for for DAO projects. I didn't want to do, like I didn't want to lead one, but I wanted to invest in one and I ended up investing in a bunch of them. This was 2019. Today, most of those investor DAO projects have not had the success of their contemporaries in the space. So like angel investors or venture funds, like structured venture funds, somewhat like resonance for us. And the reason for that is I noticed that the, the, the DAO groups, because they were not filtered in the execution. So like anybody, anybody could buy one share, show up, have an opinion. That they were often getting front run. So people would get an idea out of a DAO conversation, but they're also running a venture fund and they would go and do the deal and leave like an angel check left for the DAO. And so you haven't had, they haven't been successful because they lack elegant design in their in their governance and execution, that you don't have enough filtering of the information. And the reality is, is that early stage investing relies on privileged information. Mm -hmm. and, and when too many people uh, are being shared a, a certain set of, of information, naturally someone will shirk and front run, right? And so that's why, that's why we haven't seen uh, large successes of investor DAOs as of late. I do think that elegant design will evolve over time, but the current iteration of DAOs, with maybe the singular exception of Flamingo, it, you know, have not outperformed their venture peers and have largely not outperformed the ETH that they took in as capitalization. Yeah, right. Which so, is the benchmark to be. And that's tough, right? Like ETH yeah. is a really like you got to be really good at what you do. This is really difficult to outperform ETH. And so you, you, you have to be great. And if you have an information problem and also a tragedy, the commons problem where nobody's being paid, you know, tough to outperform. Yeah. You also, you've been working at Polychain Capital, right? I did, yeah. 
Can you tell us the story about Polychain Capital? What, what their, the role is of Polychain Capital, how you got in there? Yep. So Olaf had started Polychain in August of 2016. And I came in in September as a first employee. And it was the two of us in an apartment in SF, you know, basically doing a lot of the early SAF deals. And... And sorry, how did you get to know him? Like, how did that happen? (laughs) I had been an investor in... We had both been an investor in a company, a really interesting uh, company and a very smart founder, Richard Kribe uh, of Numerai. Mm -hmm. And uh, Richard introduced us and we started talking. I I kind of flew out there and a few hours just, you know, jamming on concepts. I think the first, our first conversation we had it was scheduled to be like half an hour and I think it was like two and a half hours by the time we both were like okay we gotta go and so we just got along really well and then we had slightly I would say adjacent synergistic views of the space like I wanted to do pure play early stage venture capital like the the deal that I had just done a few months before Polychain started was MakerDAO or actually no probably a year before Polychain had started was MakerDAO where I was the first money in the door there and they were you know, a really young team. Some of them had just come out of high school. And I liked the opportunity to deploy some capital, but then also help them with some stuff, you know, thinking through legal and things like that. And Olaf was doing some really great, like trading and quant strats and, and, and things like that. And we sort of combined both of these schools of thought of taking like a, a thoughtful, quantitative approach to early stage investing, but then trying to connect very directly with founders and trying to figure out something that we could do for them that they, you know, that they would find useful. And, and then that would allow us to get sort of leveraged, privileged deal in, in, in like an investment round or whatever. It grew like wildfire in 2017. Like it's really rare, you know, it's once in a hundred million lifetimes that you catch lightning in a bottle and we could really feel it. The, the one day that we knew that this was growing faster than, than, than we could even handle, which is a moment that in startups I call getting slippery. Like when a, a company gets slippery, it sort of like grows at a rate that, that you don't even like want it to because you can't even keep up with it. Like you're not, you're, you don't even feel ready for that. And so the moment that, that happened was the Bancor ICO, which we didn't participate. We, we had done the due diligence and, and waved that off. And I think, you know, now a number of years later, that was, that was probably a good wave. And they had raised like 120 million or something like that in a day. And our AUM was probably 150, but it was just still the two of us in this apartment. And I was actually sleeping on an, on an uh, air mattress in, the, in this apartment. Well, we called it the air mattress era. <laughs> and you were just and, two, two yeah, people working. Yeah, it was just two of us. And I, I think yeah. we've maybe started to bring on the, the third, which is Caroline, yeah. who's, who's fantastic. And she really helped professionalize the business. But we kind of scoffed at the ridiculousness of this Bancor ICO. We're like, this is ridiculous. It's probably, you know, five guys and laptops in an apartment who just raised 120 million. Yeah. And we just sort of like looked at each other and realized what we said because we were two guys with laptops in an apartment with 150 million. And I just kind of like <laughs> turned back to my computer like we had not said anything. And so that was, that was certainly a moment for me where I, I had realized that like this thing was getting really serious. And o- uh, only after, when you, you already had 150 million that you could deploy, right? 150 million AUM, so like deployed capital yeah. in... 
And is it just your and his money, or is it like? No, no, no. I was mostly it was mostly investors. Uh, Olaf had done great work in the early going of of, of Polychain of bringing on Andreessen and bringing on USV and bringing mm -hmm. on some jump trading and 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 some really like big ticket high signal investors. But then at that time, like we were trying to do deals with half our time and fundraise with half our time, and it was like. You know, in reality, we're just working 200% of the time. We're doing full-time deal and full-time full -time fundraising. And, and just, you know, we were really the only crypto fund at that moment that had gotten scale and professionalized and, and so on and so forth. And so there was just remarkable interest uh, around the fund at that time. It's a much different environment today. You know, crypto investing is, I don't want to say democratized, but someone would, someone could argue that it's democratized and that there's so many and that like people who are not crypto native are starting funds and all these things. So it's a much different competitive environment today. But at that time, we were really, for all intents and purposes, the only game in town. There was, you know, there was Metastable, but they weren't really taking money. And so it was kind of us or us for a while. You know, it was pretty wild. And then incidentally, I actually think about this quite, I thought about this uh, a few weeks ago. So in a four month period, we did the Tezos Saffron, the Filecoin Saffron, which we led, the Polkadot Saffron, which we led, and the Definity Saffron, which we led, plus the uh, Coinbase growth round. All of those companies at some point, or projects at some point, ha have today or are above $50 billion, which makes that Polychain Fund One era, that four-month era, one of the greatest vintages in the history of venture capital. Olaf is, is a pretty quiet guy, and so he doesn't talk too much about that. And I'm more focused on dialectic these days, so we don't, you know, we don't like go out and publish publish this too much. But you know, just like facts are facts, and that's probably one of the most prolific four month eras of investing in the history of venture capital. Yeah, I can imagine because the ICOs were already like pennies on a dollar, but you had even better deals because of yeah. even the ICO going, was probably yeah. already no the ICO was already a 10x for us for most most part yeah damn that's crazy because I, I I was in the, probably my worst investment no it's not the worst but I was in the Tesla ICO backholder didn't do bad it didn't lose money but yeah it's a thing I, it's I'm like, very sad that in, it doesn't in, it's not in, the top ten in coin crypt, in crypto <laughs> terms in crypto terms nobody's like happy with it today but like if you would have given that return profile to like you know, a guy over here at Glencore, like he'd get a promotion from that, yeah. right? Like yeah. That'd be the defined, <laughs> you know, True. investment of his life. And uh -huh. in fact, you do see that where, where I saw a fund a couple weeks ago raise an extreme amount of money off of, off of a couple of ICOs that they had done or like layer one funding rounds that they had done of projects that had like, I think maybe like 15x or 10x or something like that of like the entire course of like what it is today from the like pre-ICO SAFT round. <laughs> and I'm just like in crypto, like that is, yeah. that's not even table stakes. Like you're not, you're not outperforming ETH at that point, right? And you're, and so if you're not outperforming ETH, you got to really have strong look in the mirror like what am i doing here oh, okay that i like yeah. that statement i don't know if this is insensitive to us but are, are you a billionaire uh it, it's not and uh it's not something i really spent a lot of time thinking about to be honest with you okay uh it, incidentally we do have sapphire which is an internal 
tool that we offer for member families here at Dialectic that gives you a full consolidation of all of your wealth. Yeah. So it tells you all of your crypto wealth, your banking, your real estate, your, you know, your off-chain assets, collectibles, art, consolidates it all into one thing. And that visual of like what is my asset allocation split is something that's very, very important to me. Yeah. 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 Then let's go to this one. I wanted to show you this video, which is nothing new for you. But I, I would like to relive this moment with you. We're we're seeing here the video. Let's just play the video and then, then you react afterwards. This is Human One, the kinetic video sculpture and accompanying NFT. Let's open the bidding at 10, 11. 12, I'm in the back of a fundraiser. I've been raising money for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science, led by Rick Doblin. Mm -hmm. And it, at this moment, we're in the back of this party and we just flipped up the laptop to bid on this uh, okay. while, while we're at, at this party. And what, how is it? Like you just, you just click a button or are you yeah. talking to someone? Uh, I'm doing both because like at that level of auction, so an evening sale, which you know, can often get it well into eight figures, you do have someone on the line in case the, you know. Connection. Yeah, in case you, you know, I'm in the back of this house, right? Like yeah. just in this guy's kitchen, like. <laughs> okay. No, so, so anything could have happened. <laughs> okay. Because I was thinking that you would be, that this is full concentration, but you make it sound that it's, ah, I was just in the kitchen uh, doing this thing, you know, like. It almost went down on my cell phone. At 15 million Hong Kong. 15, I've taken 15 in Hong Kong. Will you go 16? Thank you. 16 in the room now. Ahead of you in Hong Kong. 16 is here. 17 in Switzerland online. 18. 19 in Switzerland. We thought we were going to get just crushed. Like, you know, mm. Cohen was in the room and and other like big collectors like Guggenheim were in the room yeah. and, and stuff like that. So Who, who's Cohen, sorry? Um, Steve Cohen. Steve the, Cohen. The, the multi-billionaire hedge okay. fund manager wow. who's, who also has a multi-billion dollar yeah. art collection. You know, Justin Sun, who... Justin Sun is rumored to have made somewhere in the tens of billions last year in MEV. And we know that he's a big Beeple fan. And mm -hmm. we know that he almost took the 5,000 days even higher than 69 million. And so we know that he had interest. And these are guys who are just like, you know, just beyond our scale, right? Like if they wanted it, they were yeah. taking it. $20 million. 21. 22. 23. 24, here in the moment, $24 million, 25 online. At $25 million, no regrets. I'm selling to our bidder online at 25 million. Sold to you out there online, thank you. I've probably watched this 20 times. It's, I really yeah. But it's just us like completely freaking out the entire time and then like yeah. celebrate. It, it, in the end, we joke around that it was good that we were not at the evening sale because um, we would have just been a scene. <laughs> like, 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 like because you were so happy. Yeah, we were just so excited. You know, we <laughs> got it for a lot less than we were expecting it to go for. It's just, just so quick as well. It's just like a so, second. So that's an interesting thing. The oh, my million. my friend who is the king of the crossover between art and crypto. He is legit OG crypto, Jahan Chu, who actually did the first SAFT with me. And he had run Sotheby's for a decade in Asia when I was doing renewables in the 2000s. And he told me the night before, he said, add energy to the auction. 
He, okay. he said, like add energy. Being, being fast. Yeah, like yeah. be on top of it. You know, don't slow play it and just see where the chips lie. You know what your limit is. Mm -hmm. You know where you're going to go and just like be high energy to that point. Yeah. I took this down for at least 4 million less than I, than I probably would have if I had slow played it and people thought like, oh, he's gassing out. But the yeah. second somebody bid, I was on top of them. And you and, can, and, and why you can is it always, it. it's just clear that it's just, the, the, the step up has to be a million. You cannot go half a million steps. Uh, the step after, I think after, the, the step after, so it was steps of 100K and then 500K and then a million. And I think it was at 500K steps when we finally sort of closed it out at, at 25. But this is funny because she... No regrets. No. I'm selling 12 million online at 25 million. She could have waited a little bit longer, but you were so, probably happy. So, no, no, no. <laughs> so this is a, a cut. This is an edit. But she slowed oh. it right down. And it was a four-minute wait. Oh, really? On oh. the end. And I'm, like, screaming into the phone to bring the hammer down. Did, she uh, stopped. She, like, readjusts her, her coat yeah. and, like, leans against the, like, against the mantle there that, that yeah. she's on and is, like, waiting and trying to coax somebody out of it and things like that. And, and, and I was like, this is like, this that, is that, that's illegal. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm, this should I was be exactly like saying this. I was like, you can't do this. Like this is, just, you know. Cause I thought, uh, well, I was so quick, you know, like. No, no, no. But but, was, okay, so it was ran like, up quick uh -huh. and then it stopped. The, the rumor is that I was bidding against one other guy in Asia, one of the co-founders of MoonPay. I don't know if this is true or not, is an unsubstantiated rumor that has been passed to me. Mm -hmm. And the smart way to play an auction is to know your number, to go into it, to to either like sit out and wait and let the auction slow down and then come in and take it below your number, or to add energy to the auction and 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 people fall out because they realize that like this guy's this guy's here to go right yeah. and that all this like idea that people have like it's poker and you need to like wait to the last second and then bid sort of like how the guy who the guy who won the constitution from constitution dow yeah the yeah. other not cohen but the other huge billionaire you know he was just like waiting and waiting each single time and then would like put in the final bid and then put in a final uh, bid like right at yeah, the very yeah. razor's edge and that actually in my view takes an auction higher because it gives a counterparty much more time to think and really when you're playing big dollar numbers you know, people are out of their comfort zone. And so you wanna, you wanna push them while they're out of their comfort zone. You don't want them to be able to like do more analysis, call around and get more capital, tie somebody else into the bid, and then like get recapitalized to, to move forward. Mm -hmm. You wanna signal that like you're here to crush them and force the stress on them rather yeah. than, than let them think through too much, so. That's that's how we played it, and I'm very happy. Uh, okay. And I'll, I'll send you the video. But we're just like yeah. blowing up in the back of this this <laughs> this house at this Maps fundraiser. Maybe you could tell us why why you wanted this piece so much. Yeah, because I mean it's a big nut for me. Like that's a lot of money for me. It's not an inconsequential purchase, and it comes down to uh, a few things. I had gotten some data 
from Christie's on the week of the event that they had to reinforce security because there was lineups out the door and around the corner for people to see this. Human One is the first piece of digital art that bridges the divide between traditional art, and we saw this last week at Castello de Rivoli and also at, at the Biennale in Venice, where the traditional art world has embraced this as a work of their own. Whereas if you go on the full other extreme, my 10-year-old son is excited about this piece of art. It's literally the only piece of art that he even knows exists or has any interest in beyond, you know, my friend Hans Ulrich did an amazing exhibition in Fortnite uh, a few months ago, and he knows that that piece exists. But you see this bridge both people who are not into art and people who are art traditionalists. It's really the only piece that does that. Because it's also physical, right? It, yeah. It's, it's like a four screens that turn around. I assume you have to stand at a fixed point and to see the animation, or you cannot, can you walk around it? Uh, you, you, well, you can do both, but it's animating while you're walking around it, or you can just stand there and like watch it animate. And so I looked at this as a bridge to, towards legitimacy for digital art. You know, scarcity had been enabled in digital art via NFTs, but people were confusing NFTs with the medium of digital art. And I thought this was a, a really important narrative to correct. I also think that, you know, art is intended to be a, a conversation on culture in the moment. And this is a deep meditation on mankind's first steps into the metaverse. You know, Human One is the first native to the metaverse, and it invokes this conversation in the onlooker of their own digital identity in relation to their physical identity. So we're not like native to the metaverse, but we may have an identity in the metaverse and that kind of... Yeah, that's how you also falls. an astronaut, he, he's wearing a suit, yeah. being kind of in a, in a world that is not his own. That's why he has to wear the suit. Yeah. So, so these, were, these were all very important where I thought, you know, hey, this is the first piece that could go in M plus or, you know, a place like Castello de Rivoli or, you know, major museums around the world. And it also opens the door for our other roster of artists, right? So like now I'm having conversations with museums about placing Mad Dog Jones pieces and Maxime Zheshkov pieces and Ash Thorpe pieces, where I could not have had that, that conversation if I did not buy Human One. And so we felt like it was a great enabler for the portfolio and a great enabler for digital art as, as a space. And then the, the last sort of piece of calculus on how high I wanted to go on this was actually in reference to the 5,000 days. So, you know, 5,000 days is a collection of 5,000 pieces of, of Beeples, e which by days. the way, yeah, yeah the everyday. So, and a massive shout out to him because today is actually the anniversary of 15 years that Beeple has been doing the everydays. You know, oh, oh. That's so yeah, and, crazy. Every day he does one art piece every and day he built his piece. community. And he, he was yeah. no, nobody for a long time in the sense of, he was somebody building, not, not in that realm. I yeah. think the crypto community pushed him to another level. Sir, so he had told me one time that the highest price that he had charged for an everyday before the Christie's auction of the, the first 5,000 was like a hundred and something dollars. And that's the thing is NFTs enabled digital scarcity, right? And then once we had digital scarcity, then these things could be represented as art with proper provenance because you don't have a problem with copying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Beeple is the standard bearer of this new 
uh, movement of digital art enabled by digital scarcity, you know, which, which is obviously enabled through NFTs. And so, you know, Jahan had, had mentioned to me that, that he thought that this was a historic piece, that this would like go down in art canon with, you know, with Pollock and Da Vinci and the great art masters of, of old. And when you think about the amazing, remarkable, stoic path that Beeple has walked to this point, it kind of starts to fit together, right? If you look at art history, masters evolved because of two things. One, they, you know, they just fell in love with their process such that they would faithfully just work and improve every single day. It wasn't for fame and fortune. It was the act of creation was its greatest reward. And then the second thing was that, and you've seen throughout art history, masters would lean into the technological technology and tools that are available to them at the time. They would either create new tools or new new ways of 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 like making art or just like innovate with the tools that they have available. And we see this from people, right? He is one of the first users of a lot of the digital tools that we now like consider obvious. And he has aggregated so many skill sets over the course of these 15 years that he's a true master of his craft. Getting back to the last point was, was around the updating. You know, the 5,000 days you could think of as actually, instead of spending 69 million on a single piece, it was 13,800 per piece because we got 5,000 pieces. Mm -hmm. But because this human one will update periodically throughout the rest of people's career, this may be even more than 5,000 pieces, right? It could be... It could be many more. Because um, he, he's doing updates and he can kind of like, uh, up, yeah, update, send it somehow there and yep. it, it will show something new. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, exactly has that. he done this? Like, yeah. What was so, the last update? So the last update, he updated it to be adorned in, the Explorer is now adorned in the colors of Ukraine, mm -hmm. walking in a war zone yeah. in the background with a tattered Ukrainian flag in the back. And so what this tells you, you know, often the great art in history is, is a, a communication of the artist's views on like culture and politics at, at the time. And I think this will be a constantly evolving piece that evolves with people's pop culture and political views as he grows through the rest of his career. So it was sort of like, you know, a bet that he will continue to evolve and his next 5,000 pieces will be even better than his last 5,000 pieces. And it was also a bet on the relationship with people. Right now I'm on this journey with him. We've become really good friends. We just spent 10 days together and we talk. You know, he and his amazing brother, Scotty and I uh, chat all the time. And it feels somewhat like a venture investment where I've made a bet on people, right? Yeah. And like. Whatever people does from here accrues some value to human want. Like, you know, as he takes his rightful place in art canon among the great masters of art history, I think human one will, you know, will be recognized as, as a masterpiece of, of, of his and thusly a masterpiece in, in kind of the great history of art. Cool. I think now we have not so much time left. Can I just quickly ask one question about dialectic? Sure. Because I think you have to go, right? I will, yes. Okay. But uh, dialectic, what I understand, it's, it's many things. It's a family office that is, uh, it was explained to it's me like... just a family office, but a family uh, office is many things. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. For, sure. yeah. for me, it was explained like this in, 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 in noob terms. Family office is like kind of, when you, when you have so much crypto wealth, just as you have, and for instance, you buy a piece for 30 million, then you have to store that. It just comes with a lot of logistical problems or like new problems that regular people don't have. You are building dialectic as a family office to solve these kinds of problems like people like you have, mm -hmm. but you will also productize it and bring it, offer the same services to other people who may have, or who, who have already the same issues or might have. So crypto rich people could basically plug in to your system, benefit from, from that in, in, a, in a way. Yep. That's a, that's a great overview. You know, in the words of the great Biggie Smalls, uh, <laughs> more money, more problems. Right? <laughs> and so okay. I spent a lot, you know, I spent a lot of the last number of years talking with a lot of centimillionaires and billionaires um, are barely able to keep their head above water, right? And mm -hmm. the refrain that you hear kind of over and over again uh, over a beer with, with some of these guys is getting rich, it feels like a ripoff, right? Like we all expected like somebody, you know, to show up and uh -huh. be like, okay, Mr. there now all of your problems are solved. Yeah. And that really never happened, right? No. And I, I, <laughs> and I know so many people in this space who still make a list of to-dos on Monday, a mile long, don't get through half of them on Friday, even though they're stressed out all week. And they're not really able to enjoy their life and, and, and the wealth they've built. They're not really able to thrive uh, rather than just survive. And I feel like finding financial independence should enable that thriving. And so we designed Dialectic to be a um, bespoke, invite-only, crypto wealth family office. So we only take on essentially friends. So often it's portfolio entrepreneurs. Very fortunately, it's also a lot of employees, myself, my co-founder, as our member families. And we're designed to help diversify their portfolio. And that's a range of different things. We've got, you know, a number of vehicles within our, you know, with, within our, our alpha machine, which is the asset manager. And then also in Bespoke, we sort of solve problems and get things done. And so we help with tax optimization and, you know, PAs and VAs. So, so like assistance and just like getting things done. Operational travel, stuff. Yeah, travel, travel which yeah. we've absolutely hacked. You know, health optimization as well. So we do like, like we help connect member families with a lot of like boutique health options around longevity and so on and so forth. Send out psychedelic drugs to them <laughs> as well. <laughs> well that will come. That, that will come. come. That will <laughs> be a big part of it. Don't worry. That, that, the, the time for psychedelics as a legitimate therapy is near. But then also like philanthropy, collecting, because obviously like collecting, whether it's like art or collectibles or whatever it is, that's its own set of issues. We sort of help member families get these issues off their plate so that if they want to work, it can be deep work in what they do best. And if they, you know, want to spend time with their families, it's quality time. And it's not like going home and doing laundry and things like that. And so that part is called Bespoke. And I brought in Whitney Black to, to run that. Whitney Black formerly and somewhat famously ran Sean Parker's family office. And then most recently ran a Tim Ferriss's family office. And now she's kind of come to generalize her skill set to be able to support our member families and and we've been we've been really really happy uh, that she's done that and that gets things off of my plate so that I can get back to doing what I love and what I am most productive in doing which is the early stage investing right connecting with entrepreneurs 
figuring out how we can help them, you know, writing the check, being first money in the door, and then, and then helping them along their road, it ends up being this really nice sort of self-referential cycle because some of the entrepreneurs who we invested in early who have gone on to do really well, and, you know, you're smart, you can figure out sort of like which entrepreneurs have kind of gone on to become high net worth individuals themselves, you know, alongside of the work that we've done with them, they can then become member families, right? And in fact, as a, you know, in a competitive venture environment, we find that we've got a really good competitive advantage in that what we offer as value add to an entrepreneur is uniquely valuable to them versus any other venture investor, mm-hmm. because they know that like they have confidence in their own product and project that they will become wealthy from that and that they will have these problems. And we've been through these problems, right? Like, you know, I can't tell you the number of crypto billionaires who can't get a bank account or centimillionaires who can't get a $5 million mortgage on a house. And, and these like very peculiar issues that you would think are solved in 2022, but are not, you know, for example, like the reporting thing, you know, I was going around to to multifamily offices and I was saying, okay, I want full real-time reporting of all of my assets across all asset classes. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, we'll like, do like a dashboard yeah. of how much is my stuff yeah. worth today? Yeah. And they're like, we'll do your, you know, your traditional assets, but that crypto stuff, you're gonna have to figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. Or I did a demo with a software provider and I was like, okay, do you guys have crypto in your, in your wealth dashboard? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, okay, show me. And so they, they go, and this is like a multi-billion dollar company. And they go, so here is where you insert the number of Bitcoins that you bought. And here's where you insert the price of the Bitcoins. And I was, uh, what? I was like, dude. It's like, like an Excel like sheet. 264 <laughs> positions across uh, 28 networks, mining, yielding, staking, you know, farming, governance, like all kinds of different assets. Like, and by the way, I need it all covered. Like you can't like cover Bitcoin and ETH, but not Polkadot and Filecoin. Like it has to all be covered. And, and so they were just shocked that somebody could be even asking for this. And I find myself today still shocked that nobody built this, that we had to build it ourselves. I find just ridiculous, frankly. And so, you know, actually that brings a, a point that I would love to communicate here that Sapphire has now been built to a point where it's a really important, valuable piece of software, but we need to now sort of allow it to live its own life and, and kind of put it out there as a product. Because to your earlier point, you know, member families use all the services, PAs and the concierge and, and so on and so forth. But there is a cohort of people in our orbit, whether they're sort of like smaller scale LP investors or entrepreneurs or just people that we like to do business with who really find Sapphire to be useful. And so we haven't built Sapphire to be a piece of software that thousands would use. We've built Sapphire to be a piece of software that dozens would use. But now we've really made the choice of like, hey, this this thing's actually super interesting. Like, you know, and so it needs its own product team, which we're hiring out for. And we think it's one of the most interesting opportunities in the space for people who want to get involved in crypto. And and it is built for for high network uh, net worth in, individuals, or would you also you know just like Anything everybody who wants to plug in their wallets yeah. can yeah. basically use it? Every every employee in our company uses it. And, okay. And so fortunately, most of the employees in our company have now become high net worth individuals, but but not every single one are. Whether people have you know five hundred thousand or five hundred million, they find it just as useful. Yeah. 
Cool. And awesome. thank you so much, Ryan, for your time. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, it was great. very, very good. Awesome. Your insights. Thank Thanks. you so much. Have to have the, the clip as well. Okay. Yeah. Happy to do an, another one, like a part two. Okay. If you want to. No, we'd love to. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's maybe do that because I feel like there's more. There's still lots that we yeah, can Yeah. I didn't go into, into the psychedelics. I wanted to ask you also. I mean, I heard it's a 25 million fund. Fund, yeah. Which compared to the, the people you just bought, it seems small. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there are different return profiles for sure. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. If you are still listening, chances are that you liked this episode. DeFi is not just me, it's also you, the listener. And growing this podcast is seriously one of the toughest challenges I've ever undertaken. It's so hard to grow an audience. But each day, there are more listeners joining and together we can spread the word about DeFi by giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Send this episode to a friend who might be interested. Check out the website, visit defire.money and click on subscribe to get the new episodes and in the future also blog posts directly into your inbox. Also make sure to follow me on Twitter at defiremoney. All of this helps so we can continue to produce more episodes more frequently and get the most interesting guests that you deserve. Good night and see you soon.